Lab. Thanks, Alice, Liam, Mark, ever so much. Let's um, gather our hearts and minds together as we begin to think about what God would have to say to us uh, this morning. New series, Seeds, Sowing for Growth. First one was uh, last week. We'll use the hashtag Seeds. You can find everything that you need uh, about it, forward slash seeds on the website. Just a reminder that you can get the PowerPoints there as well. There's also a link there for you to um, uh, podcast from iTunes, just this particular series, or all of our podcasts, if that's the kind of thing that floats your boat. Hands up if after last week, which of course you will remember, you went out and did something about it and you could verbalize right now what you did. Okay, less than five hands up in the room, I would say, give or take. That's slightly alarming, isn't it, for me? Yeah, so just something for us to think about. Last week was about listening and... How'd it go? Awesome. <laughs> okay, so uh, we, we, we just got to sort of hold ourselves on the hook a little bit and remember that the blessing, the work of God, comes from the doing, not the listening. This is not it. This is just a precursor to it. Yeah? Make sense? This is the beginning. This is the, the platform from which we might go off and do something, but it's in the doing of it that we will know God at work in our lives. It's in the doing of it that we will change. And, and we know. We know in our lives that we can come and we can be in church week after week because it's true and has been true for all of us. And know that our relationship with God has not particularly grown and not particularly changed. And the reason is it was the foolish guy who listened and didn't do anything. And the clever guy, the, 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 what's the, what's the, 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 the wise guy, that's the word I'm looking for, the wise guy who listened and tried to do something um, uh, about it. So uh, giving you the benefit of the doubt that you've packed it all up and this coming week you're going to do two things. Yeah? Or is what we're about to do not worth us doing? Oh no, please do. Please, please keep it going, please. In the doing, in the listening, okay? In the doing, in the listening. So we gear ourselves up for the listening moment. This is now. But we have to gear ourselves up for the doing moments or very little changes. And we live with the illusion that we're growing because we're regular or because we routinely involved in a moment uh, like this. Okay, seeds. The harvest that you grow is directly related to the seeds that you sow. So if you want an apple tree, you've got to sow apple pips. If you want whatever, you have to grow the right seeds. And there are seeds that I believe that we as a community need to plant in order to grow the kind of harvest we desire, but more importantly, we believe that God desires for us. Uh, and this morning, we're going to look at the second of those seeds that we need to plant, uh, and that's around leaning into our key relationships. So last week, we talked about we need to plant in our lives a rhythm for listening and doing. Today, we think about we need to plant in our lives a culture, a leaning, a, a priority, an orientation towards our key relationships. Because at the end of the day, it's all about relationships. Right at the beginning, God said, 
I'm in relationship. Actually, I'm in relationship with myself. Let us do something. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A, A relationship that's always been in existence. The relationship was first. It came before the universe. It came before the land, the sea, the sky. It came before the light even. It certainly came before day and night. And relationship in God certainly came before you and me. Relationship first. So God created mankind in his image. God created them male and female relationship. He created them because God is a relational God. And if you briefly stand back and think about it, even the story of Jesus, even the Christmas story is about a relationship primarily. Because everything, when it comes to God, flows out of relationship. Everything flows out of relationship. So the Father sent the Son. That's the Christmas story. The Gospel stories are about a Son who does the Father's work. That's what the Gospels time and time again point us to. Jesus is not off on his own somewhere doing his own thing, but he's listening and doing what the Father says. So he would say when he was questioned by his disciples one time, rather it's the the Father in me doing his work. I, I don't do anything by myself. I simply do what I see the Father doing. So a story of a father that sent a son, now a story of a son who does the will of the Father. In fact, the son who does the will of the Father, even if it costs him his life. A son who surrenders to the Father and says, not my will, but yours be done. And in return, a father who chooses in the resurrection to exalt his son. Story of a relationship being worked out in real time. The relationship of God himself worked out before our very eyes. And then we read that the father and the son send the Holy Spirit. And as you will know, if you've read any uh, theology around the Holy Spirit, people take a a lot of uh, time trying to work out whether it was the Father who sent the Spirit or whether the Son sent the Spirit or did the Father send the Spirit through the Son. point is, you can't work it out, and that's why they debate about it, because at the end of the day, everything God does is in relationship, and everything flows out of that reality. And the amazing thing is this. This relationship that has always existed and always been true. This relationship that was never made, it always was, is a relationship into which you and I are invited. That's it. That's where it all begins and ends. At the end of his life, Jesus prayed, may they be in us. It's like the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on the cross ripped themselves wide open and said, come on, I want you to join this relationship. And if we don't understand that that's what our faith is at its very core, we will always step off on the wrong premise. We will always make it too easily about something else. It's about the events that I attend. It's about the church I belong to. It's about the things that I do. It's about how good I am. It's about how often I read the Bible. It's about this. It's about that. No, no, no. Really, it's not about any of those things, fundamentally. 
Fundamentally, it's about the God of the universe ripping himself open in relationship to invite you and I in. That's an amazing thing. Because you don't want the person next to you to get that close to you. Because you know that if you let them close, what will they do? Anyone in this room ever had a close relationship? What happens in close relationships? You can get hurt. Um, you can. You do get hurt. If you've never been hurt, Nancy, let's, let's have a conversation about that. Because the reason we don't want to invite people in close is because we love them and it hurts. We think the cross is bad enough. I don't mean to compare the two, but sometimes the agony may be for God. It's not so much what happened on a hill. The agony for God is he invites you and I close and we hurt him and we wound him and it's, oh dear. His heart must break over us sometimes, don't you think? We must break his heart. And so the stepping off point is always our relationship with him. And so not surprisingly, if at the very beginning there was relationship before there was universe, if the way God reveals himself is always through relationship, then the primacy, the first place of relationship, is not surprisingly true in all the things that we seek to be and to do. And we see it, of course, in Jesus. For Jesus, it was always relationship first. It's relationship with God is presented as the first and foremost reality for Jesus. It gets settled at his baptism when Father God says, This is my son. Jesus' identity is settled in the eyes and minds, not only of, uh, of Jesus himself, but in the eyes and minds and ears of those that are listening. That's where it begins. This is my son. I am in relationship with him. And the reason that Jesus could stand upright and tall in the desert is that Jesus understood who he was. The devil says, if you do that, you can be the king. Jesus goes, no worries. Father's the king. Because he understood who he was, then he could stand even in the desert. And from that place of knowing who he was, he set about the whole of his ministry. It's an identity issue first. And this, of course, gets worked out through the whole of his life. They go looking for him a few days in, very early in the morning. They can't find him. They go up the mountainside and there he is, getting away from everybody else in order that he might prioritize his relationship with his father. And in a sense, that's what we were looking at last week. How do we prioritize those moments of listening and applying and therefore go out and do because we've heard what Father God has to say? So Jesus' ministry gets underway, but notice how he starts it. He doesn't start his ministry with a big miracle campaign. He doesn't start his ministry with a big kicking off inaugural event. Typically, we start churches in the Western world by, by launching something. And we'll say, in two months, something is coming. In one month, something is coming. In three weeks, something is coming. Two weeks, bum, 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 bang. And there will be a moment when something will get launched. Jesus, who could have created the event of the universe... He goes, no, 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 I'm just going to put these relationships first, if it's all right with you. 
And he begins by gathering some people to him. And he starts by developing a relationship with those that he's going to disciple. And so the opening chapters of the Gospels primarily are about him finding and calling people that are going to be essentially with him. Yes, he's going to send them out. Yes, they're going to do all kinds of things. Yes, the plan is that they would become like him and do what he does. But essentially, he calls people to himself. That was for Jesus the launch pad where it would begin for them. We tend to call people to do stuff. We tend to call people to task to a particular opportunity, to invite people into a project, primarily Jesus, in relationship with the Father, invites those that he's going to disciple, primarily before any task, before any discussion about what they will end up doing, primarily he invites them into relationship. And we see from uh, uh, readings like we had this morning, that Jesus invested more and more time in those relationships, even in the heat of the moment. They left that place, passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching, investing in his disciples. And so we begin to see that Jesus puts relationship first by a mile. And if you think about where this passage is in the Gospels, if you've got it open in front of you, Mark chapter 9, you can see what comes before it is the transfiguration. And we can begin to see how these relationships, his relationship with God and his relationship, developing relationship with his disciples, begins to play out. Did Jesus have favorites? Did Jesus have, more emotive word, cliques? Hope you open up, um, uh, have it open in front of you. Mark chapter 9, verse 1, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a mountain where they were all alone. Jesus is going to the most profound, the deepest experience of his earthly ministry outside the cross and resurrection. This is the most penetrating, deepest, revealing moment in his ministry when he's transfigured in the presence of the great prophets and in the glorious presence of God. It's an incredible encounter. And he says to those he is closest to, come with me. Those he was closest to, he was able to take deeper. Then they come back down the mountainside, and the other nine disciples are going to have loads of questions, aren't they? But they're a little bit distracted because they've had this uh, demonic, uh, d- this boy with a demon, and they can't quite fix it, and they can't quite sort it out. There's a bit of a, a commotion, and uh, 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 you see how all these relationships begin to play out together. They come down the mountain, and we're introduced to a third group that Jesus relates to. He relates to his father, 
He relates to those disciples that he's calling to himself. Some he calls closer than others. The three were closer than the twelve. The twelve were closer than the seventy-two. He prioritizes his relationships because like every human being, our capacity for relationship is limited. And so he prioritizes his relationships. And now thirdly, we're introduced to the crowd. Verse 17 of Mark chapter 9. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. So he's got a relationship with God, those he's discipling, and a relationship emerging with those he is seeking to reach. The crowd. Or or is it the crowd? I think it's a bit more nuanced and a bit more subtle than that. Jesus always seems, even in a crowd, to draw out somebody or a situation. The stories we have in the Bible are not generally stories of Jesus ministering to the crowds, but they are personal encounters with someone from the crowd. Our relational capacity is limited. Therefore, like Jesus, our influence, our involvement may be around someone in the crowd rather than the crowd as a whole. So Jesus, he's he's pushing through the crowd to get to Jairus' daughter, and a woman comes up behind and touches him, and gets instantly healed. And Jesus turns around, and we have the story of that woman in the crowd. There's a crowd, but we have the story, the encounter with the woman. Jesus is walking along the road to Jericho, and he calls Zacchaeus down from the tree. The crowd is all around, but Jesus draws someone out of the crowd. He goes to the pool of Siloam, loads of sick people there, and we read of one healing where Jesus spotted someone, reached out, and healed them. Now that raises all kinds of questions for us. But let's just think about what Jesus is doing. He is aware of the crowds, but even within the crowd, he is looking for personal encounter. Because it was through personal encounter that the truth and the power and the freedom of the gospel was transmitted. I guarantee that if Liam and the gang had stayed somewhere else and prayed for what was happening at uh, the Royal George, that chap would not have been healed. Because it's not, it is about the crowd, but ultimately it's about personal encounter. It's about the one in the crowd that is for me and is for now. And there's just a couple of reflections as I come into land about what some of these relational ways of Jesus might have to say to our lives today. You see, in church, generally, it's true of us as well, but in church generally, I think we are sometimes caught or mesmerized by the illusion of the crowd. We love crowds. Crowds bring a great feel-good factor. This morning would have been quite different if there had been six of us here. Hello, anyone? Perhaps there are only six of us here. There is something about the dynamic of the crowd that makes this morning something of what this morning is. Crowds create that feel-good factor because it, it, it... they, they give off, they effervesce that sense of something being successful. Imagine the fireworks around the, the kind of um, 
Millennium Wheel London Eye thing if there were just a handful of people in the front row going, ooh, ooh, ooh. Why? Because crowds go, yeah, this is us, this is Britain, we're all together and we all love one another and we're such a great nation and we, it's 2015. You don't look very convinced about that. As the church has got more marginalized, crowds become more important to us. When our church is full, we remember it because we're more used to churches being less and less full. Wasn't it fantastic when we had a great crowd at the United Service? Yes, it was. Absolutely. Not down on crowds at all. But we remember it because the the crowd itself brings something to the table. We remember the crowd of that day more than we remember what Rod preached on. Because the crowds create a dynamic of success and this is happening. Now, in all these verses in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus gets rid of the crowds because they get in the way of what he wants to do. And he certainly does invite them back the next day. Jesus tends to feed crowds and send them away. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not down on crowds. I'm not suggesting for a moment that crowd gathering is wrong. There is a place, plenty of place for crowd gathering. If we're going to go and do um, carol singing, I want a crowd. Crowds have their place. But the real stuff happens through personal relationship. So Jesus, even in a crowd, identified someone to personally connect with. And we know that's true, don't we? Because two is company and three's a... So what's 300? Whoa! Not much intimacy going on there. Uh, and so we, we, we are aware of the dynamic of how relationships work. And whether you're discipling someone or reaching out to someone, Jesus' model is it has to zoom right down to the level of personal engagement and encounter. The church grew fastest in the last century in environments where it was not possible to gather a crowd. Think of China as one example. So we don't need crowds. Yet the raison d'etre, the kind of drumbeat of church, if we're not careful, is that we will do all of these things and we want as many people to come to each one that we do. Mary had a little lamb. She also had a sheep. They both joined the Baptist church and died for lack of sleep. Because every meeting needs more people. Come on. We've got to... We want to pack it out because that's the sign of success. Is it the sign of success if the same people are packing out the meetings? And be wary of crowds. Every preacher is wary of crowds. Crowds can be very fickle, can't they? John chapter 6, most of them cleared off because they weren't happy with him. By John chapter 20, they were shouting, Crucify him. So crowds can be good, but they might not be the bee's knees. And we need to be really careful we don't fall for the illusion of the crowd. 
crowds are nameless faces that in the end form no part of the ongoing gospel story. But they were the stories of some people whose lives were changed that are still told today, and that's because of personal encounter. The way Jesus prioritizes his relationships makes us think about the illusion of the crowd. But secondly, it makes us think about our obsession with tasks. Our obsession with tasks. He called them firstly to be with him and with each other. As I said some moments ago, we tend to call people to tasks rather than relationships. And we hope that if we do a task together, the relationship will develop. And usually we say that, and we hope that that will be true, but there are two things that usually indicate to us that that's not happening. Sooner or later, someone will say, I don't really know these people we're doing this with. I think we should have a social. It's a great word in Christian circles, isn't it? A social. Sounds as exciting as sitting with a paper bag over your head. You're social. And what we say, with, oh, I think we ought to have a social, is that the dynamic of doing the task is not doing what we wanted it to do in terms of developing the relationship. Or we might say in a different environment, think we ought to have a team-building day, which is another way of saying the same thing. That the task that is the primary thing in our minds, in our agenda, as task-orientated type A people, the task is way ahead sometimes of the relationship. Sometimes to the extreme that as long as we get the task done, we don't care about the relationship. And we've completely inverted the life and ministry of Jesus. Can you see where I'm going? And we've made the task the primary thing, and relationship comes second best if we can fit it in and if we've got a good idea for a social. Another example, perhaps, is that at this time of year, we used to have a week of prayer. And we'd create lots of moments for people to pray. And we'd encourage people in their organizations to pray. And we'd create Skype ways of praying and all different stuff. And most, most people in the church just went, no. That's what happened, generally. We did that for several years. Most people just went, no, I'm all right. Thank you very much. Hope it goes well. So we stopped doing that because what's the point? So I've got a different idea coming your way in a little while, I think. And that's that we just stop everything for a week in order to pray. And immediately two things will happen in your mind. You'll think, hey, that's a great idea, but I don't think the thing I'm involved in should stop because dot, 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 dot. Okay? That most of you did that process faster than I could get it out of my mouth. What are you saying? You're saying the task is more important than the relationship. You are saying that God cannot manage if you don't carry on with what you are doing. If you think God is that weak, give up putting your trust in Him, honest. The whole point of the Sabbath was to stop and know that God can quite happily take care of it all by Himself. That's what the sabbatical is all about. That's what the 50 years of Jubilee is all about. God can look after it by himself. He doesn't need you, but he invites you gloriously into relationship with him. Imagine, though, if I didn't say, let's stop to pray, if I just said, stop. Ooh, but Simon, the, the ministry wouldn't happen, and this wouldn't happen, and people wouldn't know... People would rock up on Sunday and there'd be nothing going on. There'd be a million reasons why we wouldn't want to stop. 
But if we're not careful, it reveals where our level of trust is. Our trust is in, if we keep the task going, then God's kingdom will come. And I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Awkward moment. What should I say next? <laughs> just, just soaking it in. Soaking, just, just, just meditating on it for a moment. The obsession with tasks. And, you know, I understand that because I'm obsessed with tasks. It's not about you lot and me. This is us, isn't it? I'm obsessed with tasks. I lead a church that's task-driven. Because that's our culture. But I see something different with Jesus. You see, if we took all our activity away, which relationships here would carry on? When I look at the life and ministry of Jesus, if he stopped going around the villages and stuff, I believe his relationship with those that were around him would have carried on. Because their lives were entwined. But you and I full well know that if we stop some tasks, some people we'd never see again. And even within that church, you've experienced that. You've been part of a small group, you stop going, and you don't see them anymore. It's like they fell off the edge of the world. And you did to them. Not a criticism of anybody, but it's just an observation that that we put the task, therefore, of small group before the relationship. Because if the relationship was first, we could take that away, and we'd still have the relationship. Make sense? So there's something for us to think about there. This is my question, Em. Just one question. How are you leaning into your key relationships? With God? How are you leaning in with God? How are you leaning in? How are you RSVPing that invitation this morning to be part of that relationship that was there even before the foundation of the world? How are you leaning in? To those God is putting around you. When Jesus knew he was going up the mountainside to an amazing encounter that he would have with God that would still be told about 2,000 years later, he leaned into three guys and said, I need this to live on. Will you come with me? Who are you saying this week, this month, these next few months, hey, this is where God's taking me. I want you, I need you to come with me as we go up this particular mountain. Or who's going up a mountain that you know God needs you to get up? And you're going, I need to come with you because I need to learn that. I need to grow that in my life. I need to change that in me. I see it in you and I want it. Can I journey with you as you go up your mountain? And where is the task? Bigger than the relationship. Shifting that balance takes ages, years as we say in Wales. Years. Nothing to do with your ears. Just your years. It takes years to shift the balance. But you can take a step. But you can take a step. This relationship is going to be mean more to me. And this task is going to mean less to me. It might mean that on the outside you carry on doing exactly the same thing. But your mindset begins to change. It's these relationships with these people that I'm digging in with, not just the task. And then lastly, where's your crowd? 
Is it your work? Is it your neighborhood? Is it your, your commute? Is it your leisure? And in the crowd, I want to reach all the people in my neighborhood. Great. You have to start somewhere, which means you have to start with someone. Yeah, but I want to reach all of them. Didn't Jesus? But I love all of them. Didn't Jesus? But I want all of them to be. Didn't Jesus? Yes. Because it's personal encounter. And you can do everything you want. But if you do everything you want and it stops that personal encounter, I think the revelation of Jesus is the truth of the gospel doesn't flow and the power of God doesn't come very much. Let's be quiet for a moment.